The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. In this episode, we're going to be talking conservation with Peter Alexander, of the Gulf of Maine Restoration and Conservation Initiative. And he'll tell us about a new collaborative and inclusive effort to tackle the growing impacts of human activities in the Gulf of Maine, the sea beside the Atlantic Ocean. The beautiful Gulf of Maine appears to be a relatively pristine ecosystem. Yet, beneath the waves and along the shore, serious problems have been building up over time, and not just the well-publicized crash of native fisheries. In this episode, we'll discover what locals are doing and interested citizens can do to make a difference for our oceans in the Gulf of Maine, in the Great Lakes, and perhaps in ocean waters closest to you. If you have ideas for your ocean waters, please send me an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Welcome, Peter. Uh, Tell us about the Gulf of Maine. Is there more than meets the eye? Well, thank you, Robin. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Uh, well, the Gulf of Maine is, is you know, it's, it's an incredibly powerful and charismatic place. Uh, I can attest to that personally. I, I, I grew up, I, I tell people I grew up on an island off Cundy's Harbor, uh, which is in the Casco Bay, near, uh, a little about north of Portland. Uh, but, but I spent the school year in Washington, D.C. So usually that takes us about five seconds for people to realize what I'm talking about, but my whole formative childhood was my summer experiences in the Gulf of Maine, and more specifically on the Casco Bay. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly beautiful place. Uh, it's, it's the rugged nature of the shore, uh, the tides, the, the flora and the fauna. Uh, it's a soul-moving experience to spend time uh, in and around the Gulf of Maine. And I think a lot of people relate to it on that level. People who have a relationship with the Gulf of Maine relate to it on that level and often overlook the fact that, as you said, lurking beneath the waves and along the beaches and in the, in the rivers and the harbors, there are all sorts of very serious problems that are impacting uh, not just the quality of life, uh, but impacting the region's economy uh, and impacting the viability of, of the ecosystems to remain in balance. Mm. So, yeah, we always hear about, you know, what to eat at the restaurant, but 
Are there other uh, problems and things that we can do? Well, many of the problems are are shared by almost all of America's uh, what we call great waters ecosystems. Uh, large bodies of water like the Chesapeake Bay, uh, the Everglades, the uh, Louisiana coast, uh, some of our great rivers. We have huge problems with uh, runoff, uh, and this is a, a growing problem as development um, continues to change land uses and change the way that water flows and what gets carried in the water that's flowing across the land into our streams and rivers and ultimately into the Gulf of Maine, uh, especially impacting the near coastal waters. So do you uh, see which, things uh, when you're standing there looking out over Casco Bay? Have you seen over time some sort of changes? Well, we've gone through some cycles. Um, some of them, I'm sure, are completely natural and, and not man-made, uh, although it's hard to know. It's hard to separate out what was uh, created or maybe pushed along or uh, by some kind of human activities. But, uh, you know, some, some of the things that stand out uh, over the years have been, uh, and ironically, uh, the, the increase of waterfowl, uh, we now have eagles. Uh, I routinely see eagles mm. uh, off the basin, uh, which is a beautiful body of water uh, up on the New Meadows River in, in the eastern Casco Bay. Yeah, these are uh, white-headed bald eagles? or White-headed bald eagles, which we never saw as a child because they've been wiped out by DDT. And, the, you know, the, the fish and wildlife... Uh, the, the, the main department of uh, inland fisheries and wildlife and, and working with other groups has had a really huge success story there in bringing the bald eagles back. But then there are unintended consequences <laughs> because the fish stocks are low. The bald eagles are going out to the outer islands and stealing the eggs and the chicks of uh, endangered cormorants. So this is, you know, you never know exactly what you get when you try to fix something. You you end up with other problems that you hadn't necessarily anticipated. But uh, the real bigger problems, and that's not, I shouldn't say that is a problem, but real problems uh, are uh, tied with nutrient overloading. And this is directly related to human activities where lawn fertilizers and agricultural chemicals and fertilizers are finding their way into the near shore and environment and creating conditions in which algae blooms can happen. We just had the worst red tide uh, since 1972. Oh no! Yeah, and that, that means they have uh, to close the clam flats and or the, what, uh, yeah, what effect would that have? I like to eat seafood. So what effect would that have on me? Well, it totally closed down the shellfishery. Yeah, uh, my flight ramp didn't have it. And uh, you know, if you went to a, a, a coastal restaurant and got fried clams, they didn't come from this area. They were imported Yeah, because the entire fishery was closed down. And that had very serious economic repercussions on um, a very specific you know, part of the economy having to do with uh, shellfish harvesting. Well, you've seen a real growth in the, the shellfish industry growing mussels and oysters and things like that. Right. And, and, and they are clams. affected by this red tide. Yeah, and uh, I mean... People didn't necessarily realize that it impacts lobsters as well. I mean, they, 
those advisories about what parts of the lobster not to eat to avoid contamination and poisoning from, from this red tide algae. Do you so, see fish dying in the red tide? You know, I don't know that. It doesn't um, go hypoxic. It doesn't go so little oxygen. I that yeah, I don't they, think it has that kind of impact on the fish. Yeah. It's, the impact is on humans, mostly. Um, if, if, and, and it doesn't necessarily kill the shellfish, either, from what I understand, but it, That's right. it makes them toxic. And then they can just flush it through over time, I understand, and, and become edible once again. That's correct. Sufficient time has gone by. Right. We also have a significant problem with uh, combined sewage overflows up and down the coast, and, and not just in the big cities. A lot of uh, small towns and so forth. And this is in part being attributed to uh, climate changes where we're seeing increasingly severe um, precipitation events mm. where we might have gotten... Uh, well, this this summer was a remarkable summer up here. We, we had... Uh, June, I think, was the wettest summer on record. Uh, we had something like 27 days without sunshine. <laughs> it was just it. Like we didn't really have a summer, it felt like. For the first half of June and July, we were kind of a wash-up. We just had an enormous amount of rainfall, and all the soils were, were completely saturated. And when you get that kind of level of saturation, you get leaching of um, a septic uh, yes, uh, you know, septic, septic systems system start leaching and... into the nearshore environment, and and then you start getting uh, down where I am, uh, up where my where my summer place is, uh, up up on Phippsburg, which is just south of Bath. Um, we the, we have a cove where it started stinking real bad, and you know it's a little bit empirical because I didn't go down and. and check it with scientific instruments or take samples, but... Oh, come on, your nose is quite scientific. <laughs> when you smell sewage, you can usually pretty well figure out what it is. So, you know, those, those are fairly serious problems because uh, they really do impact not only potentially human health, but they also have a, a, perhaps an even more significant impact on just the enjoyment um, of, of the resource. And that should not be underestimated. Uh, if things continue going the way they're going, we could be facing problems like the Great Lakes are facing, where there are certain parts on the Great Lakes, in spite of a huge amount of work that's been done, that people won't go swimming. Uh, yeah, they've, they've had algae blooms. They, they've had an unbelievable array of problems on the Great Lakes related to human interventions and human activities uh, and unintended consequences of, of sometimes well-meaning um, actions, trying to trying to fix one thing and something else got even worse. So, so you worked up there at the Great Lakes. I spent four years. Uh, I'm still doing some consulting work uh, with Great Lakes, and um, that actually has led me to the the Great La the Gulf of Maine Restoration and Conservation Initiative that I've been working on here. Uh, because these pro all the problems that and there's more and I, we won't go into them necessarily right now, but all of these problems have manageable solutions, or at least most of them do. And those manageable solutions uh, require a significant amount of thing to implement. Uh, looking at combined sewage overflows along the Gulf of Maine, that is probably the single most expensive problem to fix 
because these municipal wastewater treatment systems, uh, they're very expensive. Yes. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, probably up and down the Gulf of Maine. It's well over $1.5 billion that is needed to modernize and upgrade uh, just for our current population and our current use to upgrade the sewage and wastewater treatment uh, and stormwater systems so that we prevent raw sewage from washing into our near coastal waters uh, whenever it's a great big uh, precipitation event. But uh, in order to get that kind of funding, you need to have a really good argument for it. You have to have a really good plan. And what we discovered with the Great Lakes is that by having a comprehensive restoration strategy that looks at all of the various impacts and uh, all, all the uh, problems that are, are, are facing the Great Lakes, we were able to create a comprehensive strategy and then take that to Congress and say, this is what we need funding for. And we managed to get all the different stakeholder groups on the same side of the line on this one. Industry groups, chambers of commerce, uh, environmental groups, zoos, aquaria, um, huge cross-section of stakeholder groups in the, in the Great Lakes got on the same side and all became advocates for federal funding for this plan. And as a result, uh, Obama, during his campaign, pledged $5 billion dollars uh, towards restoration of the Great Lakes, and this year made good on it with a $475 million appropriation with the Interior Appropriations Bill. Excellent. Uh, yeah. And well, it really helped that it was a very inclusive process, so that it resulted in a... Uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll uh, be back with Peter Alexander talking conservation. listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. So many key world issues today relate to energy and environment. We are living in a time where world events set us up for a major transformation of our society. Enter Dr. Bernie Balkan. Dr. Balkan is Commissioner for Energy and Transport for the Sustainable Development Commission in the UK. Whether it's the financial crisis, China's transformation, the emergence of India, or Obama's ascension, put yourself on the pulse of today's changes. Listen for Environment on the Edge with Dr. Bernie Balkan, Tuesdays at 10 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking conservation with Peter Alexander of the Gulf of Maine Restoration and Conservation Initiative. If you want to um, learn more about Peter's work, uh, you should visit his webpage, which is www.talkingconservation.org. And it's a great place to go in the wintertime because it's all covered with seawater and wonderful visions of of, um, the Gulf of Maine, and it's a great escape from the drearies of November that's coming in on us here. Uh, don't remind us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Peter, you were talking a bit about what was going on in the Great Lakes. Yeah, and, and that process was really quite an extraordinary one. Uh, it, was a, it was started by an executive order that came down from uh, President Bush, uh, which was an unexpected uh, bonus. And then uh, it, it went into this federal agency level and got driven uh, by federal agencies uh, but became enormously inclusive, and they had over 1,500 um, stakeholders, members of the public, members of you know, business interests, uh, utilities were there, uh, industry groups were there, uh, uh, citizen groups, environmental groups. It was an enormously broad um, spectrum, uh, an extremely inclusive process that ended up as a consensus process, agreeing on four broad issue areas uh, that became sort of the pillars of the Great Lakes Restoration Plan, and that was invasive species, which is an enormous problem there, uh, wildlife, fish and wildlife habitat, uh, water quality, uh, and one other, which has slipped my mind, but um, 
anyway, those they they came to consensus agreement. So there yeah. was nobody uh, trying to shoot bullets at this thing. Everybody was pulling in the same direction, and that has been the inspiration and a model for what we're trying to do here in the Gulf of Maine. I might add that in this year's Interior Appropriations Bill, there is somewhere between 500 and $700 million specifically appropriated for restoration activities in these, what we call America's Great Waters. And uh, the bill specifically includes uh, Puget Sound, which is getting $50 million, uh, the Chesapeake Bay, which is getting $50 million, the Louisiana Gulf Coast, the Great Lakes, Lake Champlain is getting $5 million. Gulf of Maine is getting none through this bill. Why is that? The reason is, and I talked to Senator Snow about this in person. I ran into her at the airport in Washington, D.C. one evening, um, and, and she referred me to her staff, uh, who dealing with marine issues, and the bottom line was that the Gulf of Maine did not have a comprehensive restoration and conservation plan. We have a lot of individual plans. There's fantastic work going on up at the restoration of the Penobscot Bay, for example. The Natural Resources Council of Maine and other groups are just doing great work. Uh, the Gulf of Maine Council for the Marine Environment had a habitat restoration plan but there was no comprehensive plan on the scale of what had been done for the Great Lakes or what had been done uh, for um, some of these other Great Waters ecosystems. Yes, you needed a, a regional collaborative strategy like the Great Lakes. That's exactly right. And uh, fortunately, uh, because of the example of the Great Lakes and because of the fact that their success was so visible, I mean, $475 million in the first year of a $5 billion pledge is no small deal. Uh, and the success of these other great waters that also had uh, their comprehensive plans in place, it really provided an impetus. Uh, instead of a top-down approach where it came from uh, an executive order from the president, it actually came up from a much more grassroots approach. Uh, I was able to get uh, colleagues from the Gulf of Maine uh, Council on the Marine Environment and from the Maine, uh, the state of Maine, uh, coastal, uh, Maine Coastal Program mm. and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's uh, Gulf of Maine Coastal Program, that's Stu Pfeffer and uh, a number of other people with whom I had already been talking about communications strategies, and that's a whole other conversation we should have, Rob, that's probably right up your line. Uh, yes. I brought this idea of creating a comprehensive plan, and they really jumped on board with it, and it has now got a tremendous amount of momentum. We uh, at a multi-stakeholder meeting in June. We crafted a seven-point strategy, and basically it's identified seven broad issue areas that we think need to be included in, into a comprehensive plan. And we've broken that down into the kinds of specific issues and projects uh, that might be addressed under each heading of issue area. And, for example, water quality. There are a whole bunch of different things that impact water quality that I already talked about uh, earlier in the show. Uh, non -points, what we call non-point source runoff, that is 
when a rainstorm comes, it washes yard fertilizer and agricultural fertilizers and chemicals into the streams and rivers, and they end up coming down and doing what we call nutrient loading uh, in the nearshore environment, which has an enormous impact on fish and uh, plant life. And we can get these huge algae blooms. And as I mentioned, we had this big red tide, which is a kind of an algae that creates serious health implications for human beings. So there are various strategies to deal with that. Uh, you know, one is fixing the sewage systems, and that's, like I said, very expensive. Uh, another one is a, a regulatory approach, um, making sure that the, ag- you know, the farmers and, and, uh, and residents in the municipal level are using yard chemicals correctly or are finding alternatives uh, to those things. So there's a, there's a big cross-section of strategies mm. that can be applied for that one broad-heading issue area of water quality. And so our plan, our process at this point, we're having another meeting uh, November 20th, and we're circulating, by the way, uh, a, a briefing paper that has the strategic framework of this strategic plan or comprehensive plan uh, outlined. And I'm happy to share that with anybody who's interested uh, and take comments and suggestions. And November 20th, we're going to be having a, another uh, larger meeting, and we're going to be at that meeting. One of the hoped-for outcomes is a specific appropriations request that would um, uh, that will identify an, uh, um, certain amounts of money to be applied for each of these uh, issue areas to begin or continue or ramp up, in some cases, restoration activities uh, throughout the Gulf. And the Gulf of Maine, of course, includes Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, and also includes Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick. We don't want to forget about them. And uh, the Canadian colleagues uh, are also involved in this process, although theirs is an entirely different process in terms of how to get appropriations. Uh, yeah. And we're not sure how that's all going to play out. So you're working in parallel. You're not all mixed up together. Well, the, the Gulf of Maine Council on the Marine Environment is a binational body. And as the convening organization for this restoration planning process, we necessarily need to include the Canadian side and make sure that they try to do something. We we don't know if they have the same critical mass uh, there that we seem to have here, but certainly Canadian public opinion is on their side. Uh, When I was working on the Great Lakes, we conducted public opinion research among Canadian citizens about restoration of the Great Lakes, and it was overwhelming support. Over 70% of Canadians uh, who were told in the region of the Great Lakes agreed that uh, their tax dollars be used to fund uh, up to $2 billion a year in restoration activities just on the Canadian side of the Great Lakes. So the Canadians have a very different attitude about resource protection uh, than Americans did in in Ohio, for example. They're ahead of us. We didn't we didn't, <laughs> we didn't get anywhere near those numbers polling in Ohio. There's much lower levels of support for increased uh, for using tax dollars to fund uh, restoration activities on the Great Lakes. So there's hopeful signs there that uh, that Canada will be a, a, a good and willing partner 
uh, in any plan that we end up working out. Yes, the, the, uh, about almost two decades ago, the, Ocean, the uh, National Marine Education Association held our annual conference in uh, Cleveland, right there on the lake. And we ended up pulling our feature speaker in from the Canadian side of things because um, they just had so much to say about how far ahead they were and how concerned they were and showing examples of what communities could do to um, address this you know, nutrient-loading, sliming of the waters problem and basic species problems. And, and they actually brought in, they claimed they were Canadian, the Fraggle Rock um, Muppets as, as uh, Canadian environmental protectors and stuff, and somehow that helped to inspire us Americans to be more marine educated and active. <laughs> well, it's kind of a hopscotch, a friendly competition that creates a hopscotch uh, environment where, you know, yeah, we'll be back ahead, here. We have break for it. <laughs> so, but you're dealing with uh, regional and national politics and state politics and provincial politics and there's no one roadmap that indicates uh, how things will go and according to what timeline. So we just do the best we can to collaborate and cooperate and communicate. Great. We'll be back after this break. Great. Thank you for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. Have questions about wind power? Listen for the TLG Wind Power Hour with Terry from TLG Wind Power Products. He'll cover the ins and outs of wind energy with you. Whether you're a do-it-yourselfer or want a ready-made product, let Terry give you the know-how and understanding of making wind energy work for you. Terry will share decades of hands-on experience so that you don't have to learn about wind power the hard way. The TLG Wind Power Hour, live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. 
Healthy Living starts here. For listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking conservation with Peter Alexander of the Gulf of Maine Restoration and Conservation Initiative. You can learn more about the work that Peter's doing and the references he's referring to at his website, www.talkingconservation.org. Peter, we were talking about the Great Lakes and we're talking about the Gulf of Maine. And what are some of the economic implications of what you're talking about? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Rob, uh, because in in advocating for federal funding for the Great Lakes Plan, uh, and I've been involved in that for four years, uh, doing the communication side and, and conducting uh, or overseeing public opinion research to figure out uh, how we could talk about this uh, in ways that were going to really galvanize the public and galvanize public opinion, the economic implications of Great Lakes restoration uh, we're huge, and there are parallel benefits uh, here, or would be, uh, for the uh, Gulf of Maine. Um, the Brookings Institution uh, did a comprehensive study uh, and made some economic predictions um, based on full implementation and full investment of the federal funds into the restoration strategy for the Great Lakes and the price tag on that ranged between 20 and 26 billion dollars and the brookings institution determined that that would result in an immediate uh and long range benefits of at least 50 uh and as much as 75 billion dollars in increased economic activity well that's some pretty big numbers and when you're looking at an area that has a depressed economy uh that that makes an enormous impact. And the way you see that playing out, or the way we would see that playing out here, yeah. is that restoration activities create a lot of jobs, and they bring a lot of money into the area. Building, uh, you know, the kind of work, habitat restoration work, often involves taking out undersized culverts, uh, removing dams, or building um, uh, waterways around dams that fish can navigate up upstream above the dam and things like that. Those kinds of construction jobs are usually very well-paying, and they bring a lot of money into the community. And that money then circulates, recirculates, uh, and it has what they call a multiplier effect. And uh, it, it ends up being very, very significant. So we, by, by playing that economic benefits card in the Great Lakes, we were able to get a lot of uh, people on board who were more conservative in their 
politics and more conservative in their their fiscal policy and their fiscal approach. Uh, but when they when you see that you know a dollar invested was going to bring two to three dollars in economic activity, that's a pretty compelling argument. You you can't really invest in many corporations or many businesses that can give you that kind of a return. But investing publicly... That's right. It seems that uh, Maine, more than the coast of Cleveland and and Ohio, uh, depends on tourist dollars. And is is that connected to this activities? Well, it would be. uh, You know, how that plays out and and what the benefits are to, to tourism... Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think those have been very thoroughly studied or or um, quantified. But uh, it must make sense to the local people that if they can make the seawater less slimy and and uh, maybe there would be you know a nicer environment. Um, I can I can tell you that uh, there's a fairly significant impact uh, this year on the shellfish industry because of the red tide, and that had a pretty. That was a negative impact, yeah. A negative impact, yeah, and that had a negative impact on tourist spending because tourists weren't buying clams. Uh, you know, right. up at Cundy's Harbor, they have the, the Holbrook's Wharf, which is an absolutely fantastic, wonderful place, by the way. If you ever get up this way, I'll, I'll take you out to a lunch there. They have a <laughs> snack bar, and they had signs up all summer, just a, you know, a hand-scrolled sign, uh, no no fried clams due to the red tide. That's right. And then you I mentioned going to a beach and smelling sewage. That's not good for tourism. No, no, of course it's not. It's terrible. But the, an interesting hap- thing happened out there. You know, these are very local people who are running this snack bar. The woman who runs it uh, grew up in, in Bath. And, oh, great. You know, she had her, all her family working there. And I, I went up to her and I said, Dad, you know, in, in addition to the sign that says due to red tide... Let's also put up a little sign that says, please call Senator Snow and Collins and put their phone numbers and encourage them to deal with this issue of red tide in the Gulf of Maine. <laughs> so we turned, we turned this little uh, the snack bar into an advocacy uh, vehicle. But, uh, you know, when they make the connection like that, there's a very direct connection when, when people... And see the impacts, and are are that personally impacted by the, by you know the, the conditions, then they're much more likely to to take action and take responsibility, and and that's what it takes to make things happen. We Absolutely, to... this is happening in Washington as we speak. There is now a bill on the Senate floor, uh, co-sponsored by Senator Snow, to address harmful algal blooms red tide, hypoxia, you know, the dead zone you get in too much blooming. And it's a research, but more than research, it's also implementation and restoration funds. That's so right. I'm sure that, you know, people speaking to their senator makes a big difference for senators with all the demands they have on their time to, to stand behind crafting a bill and so forth. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. Uh, and there's other bills in Congress right now as we speak. Uh, this Great Waters Appropriations through the Interior Department is actually in Conference Committee. It passed the House with full funding. Uh, it passed the Senate with reduced funding. And now they're going to Conference Committee to try to determine what's the middle ground that they're going to all agree on. And uh, we're still trying to get a little something in there for the Gulf of Maine because currently there isn't any uh, Great Waters Appropriation for the, for the Gulf of Maine. Mm. By the way, I wanted to mention that uh, in addition to my own website, which is uh, 
www.talkingconservation.org, which really focuses on my communications work. Uh, you can read more about this uh, Gulf of Maine restoration initiative at the Gulf of Maine Council's website, which is quite simply gulfofmaine.org slash G-O-M-R-C. And that stands for Gulf of Maine Restoration Collaborative, I guess we were calling it at one point. So G-O-M-R-C, tagged on uh, to gulfofmaine.org. We'll get you to a page where uh, you can learn more about that. And I've tried to update that page. Uh, I updated it recently uh, with a table uh, that contains these seven issue areas uh, and some detailed information about that. And I want to invite people to get involved. I mean, if you, if you have suggestions or questions or you just want to be kept in the loop, uh, you can write to me. Uh, my email address is peter at talkingconservation, T-A-L-K-I-N-G, conservation, C-O-N-S-E-R-V-A-T-I-O-N dot O-R-G. And I'm more than happy to, to communicate with you and share with you and invite you to participate in, uh, in these We'll be having increasingly public uh, forums to um, to get this this plan vetted and make sure that we have universal buy-in uh, before we take it down to Congress and ask them to to fund it. So there's lots of ways to be involved. And you mentioned um, November 20th at the new uh, National Marine Fisheries Center in Gloucester. Yes, we're having a meeting there. It's uh, we're limited by space. Uh, we will only have room for about 60 people. Uh, so we're, we're focusing first on the state and federal agency people and the, uh, the folks who have a specialty uh, interest or expertise in these various issue areas so that we can make sure we have the strategic framework of the plan right. Uh, but there is definitely room for, for people to participate and uh, possibly even attend in person uh, for those who are interested. So people should just contact me if they'd like to, and in a ver- at a very minimum, I'll keep you in the loop with uh, email updates from time to time. Yes, it's very important because, you know, politicians are watching how many citizens are engaged in situations. And with the opportunity for funding to go to the Gulf of Maine, in addition to the other places with this appropriations bill. Um, in well, fact, we're going to hear more after the break from Mike Dunmire of Ocean Champions about what's happening on Capitol Hill. And there's one other thing, if we have time, I'd just like to mention this Great Waters, America's Great Waters Coalition. All right, we'll do that after the break. Okay, great. Thank you for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. All together now. All together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Experience higher love, an archangelic journey into ascended joy and authentic living. Your hosts, Sri Ram Ka and Kira Ra, will assist you to open your heart, expand your love, and be ever-present with true joy. Your journey with Sri and Kira begins right here on the 7th Wave Network with Higher Love, Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we've been talking with Peter Alexander of the Gulf of Maine Restoration and Conservation Initiative. Uh, his website is www.talkingconservation.org. And Peter was setting, had a great setup line of wanting to talk more about the efforts that are being done collaboratively across the nation for uh, improving the oceans. And who better to do so than Mike Dunmire, who's on the phone with me now, um, Mike is the executive director of Ocean Champions. Mike, how are you doing? Fabulous, Rob. How are you today? Great. Well, Peter's been telling us that there's right now a red tide outbreak in Maine, and that if I want to eat my clams and shellfish and mussels and so forth and lobster, even it's got to come from out of the region. Um, and I understand. Uh, can you give us some updates on the harmful algal bloom legislation? Yeah, we, uh, we continue to have, uh, really good progress on that. Uh, just last week, uh, it was passed out of the Science and Technology Committee of the House, um, which gets it pretty close to being ready for floor action in both houses of Congress. Um, that particular meeting was, was pretty exciting. Uh, all of the, the committee hearings to date have been somewhat uneventful because this is, you know, it's, it's a good bill. It has very few natural enemies and it's got good bipartisan support. And in fact, the uh, the Science and Technology Committee began with uh, with the chair Gordon, uh, one of our ocean champions, uh, complimenting the minority, saying they had offered a number of helpful suggestions and that they had incorporated many of them. Uh, and then Ranking Member Hall also commended the bipartisan coordination and and uh, uh, efforts of, of of Congressman Baird and Congressman Ehlers, who kind of co-authored the legislation. And there was lots of really good, warm, fuzzy bipartisan feelings going on. But this is Washington D.C., of course, Rob. And so, you know, as we started the hearing, you know, the minority had to get their uh, their, their digs in on this one. And, and uh, Brian Bilbray from uh, San Diego, um, who styles himself as an ocean champion, but is not, and, and by any stretch, began talking about how, you know, aren't Habs uh, just naturally occurring? 
And uh, Congressman Baird just did a great job responding, saying, well, you know, um, many of them are, uh, and that is true, although we can't argue with the fact that man is causing uh, uh, you know, many more to happen and for them to be much more intense and toxic, but certainly many are. And if you had attended our hearing, uh, you would have heard that a uh, big part of this bill is improving the ability to predict and monitor these, these uh, tides when they come so that uh, you can make sure that people are warned not to be eating the seafood when a, when a red tide is about to come because they could get sick, so they're big human health considerations. Thank you, Congressman Bill Bray, for pointing that out. <laughs> and, uh, yes, he really nailed it. Yeah, he was somewhat uh, quiet after that, but uh, nonetheless, the, the minority offered three uh, amendments that all really were trying to say, hey, this bill could put unfunded mandates on various localities to have to clean up HABs, so we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. And, and Congressman Baird, again, did a brilliant job uh, pointing out that the bill did not do that, um, that it uh, that it was structured not to place undue burdens on localities, but that you needed to have some teeth because, in fact, uh, polluters that are upstream quite often are the ones causing the problems that are felt downstream in the ocean. Uh, and if, uh, if these uh, states and localities weren't required to do something about it, they are, in fact, placing unfunded mandates on the, on the downstream states. Mm. Um, and uh, the point was taken well. Uh, uh, Chairman Gordon ran a brilliant meeting. It was interesting as the, the, the committee meeting was well attended by members on both parties, but it, the committee meetings don't often have full attendance. But uh, as a vote was called for each one of these amendments, out of nowhere, you know, 15 Democratic congressmen would appear to vote their, you know, to register their no vote and shut down uh, what would have been a weakening amendment. So three times amendments were raised, three times they were put down. But at the very end, uh, uh, bipartisan good feelings returned, and the, the, the bill was unanimously uh, passed and now moves on. Uh, it is almost clear for the floor. It has, uh, there's, there's uh, joint jurisdiction. The Natural Resources Committee also needs to take a look at this bill. But we've heard from uh, staffers on the committee that they're going to discharge the bill in, within a couple weeks, and so it should be ready for the floor uh, very soon. And, uh, again, it's ready for the floor in the Senate. And uh, Ocean Champions has been meeting closely with uh, Majority Leader Reed's staff uh, to see what we can do to try and get it on the calendar to get consideration. Uh, and those meetings are progressing very well. Right now, what we're up against simply is just a jam-packed legislative calendar. When you've got health care and climate and, uh, you know, some other major issues out there, it's tough to get attention. Um, but uh, given what we're hearing, it, you know, it's, it's very difficult to get a good bill passed, but we like what we're hearing so far, so we continue to be hopeful that we'll be able to get the HABs bill passed this year. Um, and we, of course, do have uh, through December of 2010 to get it passed at this point, since that's the end of this Congress. But... But, again, we're hopeful we can get it done this year. Excellent, excellent. I, I know that climate is a big issue. We've been hearing uh, various things about it. We're also preparing for a national or an international 350 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere day on a week from Saturday, October 24th. Uh, Barbara Boxer happened to be in Boston uh, yesterday, and um, I had an opportunity to, to hear her talk about how closely she's working with Senator John Kerry in putting forward the climate bill. Yeah, in fact, uh, uh, we attended an event for Senator Boxer uh, last week as well, and it was really interesting because she, of course, has uh, a very long history of, of being a very good environmental uh, senator and, and very concerned about the natural world. 
uh, and she was speaking a good deal about climate at this event. But uh, it was interesting because her comments were very targeted towards the economy and markets. And her big point that she's making right now, I don't know, Rob, if she made it with uh, with you guys up in Boston, but she was talking about the need to be able to put a market price on carbon because there's so much investment that is waiting to pour into alternative clean tech and, and clean energy. Uh, and as soon as there's a market price on carbon, all this investment can flow. And she believes that, one, that's a huge boon to the economy, that we don't want to cede those technologies to China, uh, and that that's the way that we play our way out of this situation, by bringing these alternatives to scale. Uh, and so she sees a, she's a huge upside in the climate bill from an economic perspective as well. Absolutely. And some of this involves oceans. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, you know, and, and again, coming back to Congressman Baird, um, uh, he always, he's, he's been making this point, and I've started to use it as well, that uh, there are a number of people out there that are still global warming deniers that say we don't need a climate bill because global warming isn't real, it's not happening, and, and Congressman Baird's response to these people is to say, okay, well, fine, let's just set that aside for a minute. We won't, we won't debate that point. But uh, what you cannot debate is that ocean acidification, which is destroying habitat, killing the food web, destroying you know all, all the little the, the shellfish and 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 plankton and and, and uh, smaller animals that form the basis of the food web for all sea life, uh, are being killed off by the changes in ocean chemistry, and those changes uh, are being brought about by excess carbon dioxide, the same thing that is purportedly causing global warming. So even if you don't believe in global warming, you can't argue simple water chemistry. This is happening, and we have to do something about it for the oceans, if for nothing else. It's, it's a great argument. It is so great to have a scientist on the, in the House like uh, Congressman Beard from Washington. <laughs> Indeed it is. I've been telling people that uh, the more I see him, the more I just want to move to Washington State <laughs> if solely that I could, I could vote for the guy. <laughs> I just like listening to him. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's great. Uh, this is uh, very encouraging news on, on two fronts. And um, I, I you know, want to thank you, Mike, for, um, for keeping us updated with uh, where with all what's happening with Ocean uh, Champions. Um, and if people are interested in, in the work of Ocean Champions, I would urge you to visit uh, the uh, website, um, www.oceanchampions.org. And... Um, and, Mike, there are other ways to be in touch with you, right, like through Facebook? or There are indeed. We have a, a Facebook page under Ocean Champions. We also tweet, and we've been tweeting live from all of these hearings, so it's able to give the, the partisan blow-by-blow blow directly from the, the committee room. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, if, if you're really interested, our, our numbers are available right there on the website, and you certainly give myself or the, uh, the founder, David Wilmot, a call if there's something we can do to, to talk about. Ocean Champions is the only political voice for the ocean. We're the only group that participates in the electoral process as well as the legislative process, and uh, we think that gives us a real unique leg up in our ability to get things done on Capitol Hill, and it's, uh, it's a model that's working. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, um, Rob. Peter, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Peter Alexander, thank you so much for taking time with us on the radio today. Thank you, Rob. It's been great. That's it for this episode of Moyers and Fundamental Dialogue.
Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Rob